Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. One quick note before we get started. In this episode, we're talking a lot about different medications and different forms of substance use treatment. What we're not talking about specifically is what is a substance use disorder? Or put differently, what differentiates using a drug and having a disorder? Because not all drug use is problematic. And at the same time, people who are using substances sometimes aren't aware of the impact on their lives and the lives of people around them. Or they are, but they're still having trouble stopping. That's addiction. Hopefully you'll have specific lectures about the criteria of substance use. If this sounds familiar for you or someone you know, consider reaching out to get help. We live in a world with misconceptions and a lot of baggage about addiction, but you can feel rest assured that from the host of this podcast, no shame, just kudos for getting treatment. One place to start is SAMHSA, that's the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration. It's part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services if you live here in the United States. They run a national helpline. It's open 24-7, 365. It's free, it's confidential, and it's a good place to get referrals and, and information. They have info in English and Spanish, both for individuals and families that are facing mental health or substance use disorders. Their phone number is 1-800-662-HELP. It's 1-800-662-4357. We're not connected at all, but we're interested in keeping you around and keeping you healthy. And now, on to the show. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, James. Well, the music is still bumping. Let's go back inside. All right. Well, I would say I have dropped the bass on that one, yeah. and it's time to uh, get back to work here in the medical tent. That's right. The Burning Man tent, still burning. With the fiery passion of an EDM mix. That's right. I'll tell you that much. All right. So people have lined up outside our tent, and we are here to help them. Last week, we were just here to identify them. Right. We're like, hey, you're high. Now we'll know how to help them. We know how to help them. There's a lot of ways to treat substance use without using medications at all. Um, yeah. And that can look like a lot of things. That can look like therapy. You know, there's evidence of certain types of therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy. There are also other things, sort of like techniques that people have used, whether that's distracting yourself with other tasks or, or you know, especially for tobacco, there's this really common thing with like sort of people having this oral fixation and so putting other things in their mouth, like carrot sticks or gum or things like that. And then are there groups that are helpful? Groups are a really common part of substance use recovery. And this is kind of a personal thing. Like maybe groups are right for you and maybe they're not. But a lot of people find them really helpful. I mean, Alcoholic Anonymous is a huge organization with groups around the world. There's also Narcotics Anonymous. There are many, many groups, many support groups. And for a lot of people, they're really helpful. That said, today we're largely going to focus on medications because that's often what psychiatric practitioners get asked about and things that often are tested. So just like last time, we talked about six categories. And today, I also want to break this into six categories to help break this down into manageable bite-sized pieces. Cool. So let's get started with alcohol. All right. Now, you may be familiar with alcohol 
intoxication and perhaps with some of the withdrawal effects, people can feel pretty ill. This is life-threatening because your body is so upregulated. The glutamate, that without, without the alcohol, without the sort of depressant effect, your body's left in this really ramped-up state. There's no counterbalance on the weight. Therefore, the treatment is going to involve adding extra gabaminergic support. To kind of calm down all that autonomic hyperactivity. That imbalance, exactly. Yeah, so how would we go about doing that? So... One, fluids, because people can become really fluid dysregulated. And so the classic thing, you may have heard of like a banana bag, which includes fluids like saline, often dextrose, potassium, banana bag, thiamine, which can make it look kind of yellow, magnesium, folic acid. So supplementing some of the things that people tend to be deficient in. Now, the other thing we want to do is we want to monitor somebody's withdrawals. And these days we try to do it both with subjective measures like how are you feeling, what symptoms are you having, and then objectively as well. And a really common protocol to use is the CWAR, the, the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment for Alcohol. And so you plug in a bunch of calculations and you should look up a CWAR table and then you yields this score. Now, like we said, the medication you're trying to use here is, is boosting your gabaminergic, and that often looks like benzodiazepines. So how do we dose the benzos? Which ones do we use? Good question. So you can either give somebody them up front. Now, if you really are pretty confident that this person's going to go into alcohol withdrawal, like maybe they've done it before, and then maybe they've had like a really what we'd call like complicated withdrawal, meaning like they've had seizures, they've had delirium tremens then you might upfront say, you know what, we're going to prophylactically or preemptively give somebody some benzodiazepines. So start them on scheduled benzos. Exactly. Boom. Now, if you're not sure, you can also follow the CUA score. And if they have a score over a certain number that's sort of dictated by your institution, maybe that's 10 or 12 or 15, then you might give a dose. Or that's what we'd call a symptom-triggered CUA. Gotcha. What do we commonly use? Like, which benzos do we like to use? There's a couple Chlorodiazepoxide epoxide is Librium or diazepam is Valium. Uh, they tend to be like longer acting benzodiazepines. Lorazepam is kind of a more medium acting, but is also fairly common. I think those three, lorazepam, diazepam, and chlorodiazepoxide. epoxide. One thing, just as like an aside, is that lorazepam is especially useful when you have someone with liver disease. And I remember that because it has an L for liver. Mm, mm-hmm. And then that's because it's not processed by the liver, right? Exactly, exactly. Whereas uh, diazepam and chlordiazepoxide or Librium are both kind of more liver metabolized. So if somebody had really bad alcohol disease or like cirrhosis of their liver, they might not metabolize these in the same way and you could end up with like too much, for instance. Exactly. They might kind of become intoxicated on the benzo. Mm-hmm. So think lorazepam, liver, not the liver. <laughs> exactly. It's easy. <laughs> easy. All right. So then we think about, okay, once somebody's out of the woods in terms of like acutely coming off right, of alcohol. Like how do we help prevent relapse? I think of three different medications for relapse prevention from alcohol. Now, one is disulfiram or anabuse. You may have heard of. This is the one that you take, and then if you drink, you feel really sick. Specifically, it's blocking this aldehyde dehydrogenase, and so you're not breaking down alcohol at all. And you just end up with this, and then it feels terrible. Mm. You become flushed. You can have headaches. You can feel queasy. You can throw up. 
You're going to have heart palpitations. Yeah, patients say it's pretty awful. It's like very violent illness. It's a pretty strong motivator not to drink. Yeah. And so this is something that you take by mouth every day. And so the people that would be useful for people that are really motivated or sometimes people that are in monitored settings, like where they're, you can see that they're getting this medication every day, really motivated people can in, include things like people who are in a program that's helping them get back to work and that's contingent on not using alcohol. That makes sense. Who should we avoid this medication for? So when you think about people throwing up or having a really violent reaction, you'd want to avoid people for whom that would be dangerous. Mm. So people who are pregnant because you have this risk of abruption or, or things like that. Right. People with really severe cardiovascular disease because of the risk for palpitations. Blood pressure fluctuations putting them at higher risk of stroke and mm -hmm. well, i can see all sorts of badness happening with those people so think about people who should not be violently retching makes sense okay let's say like we don't have as motivated a person what are mm -hmm. our options then so there's another drug naltrexone this is one to keep in mind because we're going to come back to it but naltrexone blocks the opioid receptors so there, you're not really trying to get at the alcohol per se. You're trying to get at this reward pathway that comes into play. So the opioid, you think of you think of reward. This is a drug you can either take it by mouth, or you can get a shot, and the shot lasts for about a month. And so naltrexone, then the long-term one is called Vivitrol. What are the side effects? Some people, again, this kind of comes to the opioid quality. Some people describe a little bit of nausea. Some people it reduces their appetite a little bit. I tend to think of this drug as helpful for people who have really strong cravings, who like really desire to drink. It's also useful who binge on alcoholics who can reduce some of that overwhelming feeling. People with a really strong family history of alcoholism. Also, because this one comes in a shot form, it's helpful if somebody doesn't want to take a medication every single day. And that just makes wants sense. To get it once a week, month. Right, right. Who, when should we avoid this medication? It sounds pretty good. It's pretty useful. So if somebody was also dependent on opioids, like whether that's a prescribed opioid or they're using illicit opioids, that's not great because it's going to quickly throw somebody in withdrawal because you're blocking mm, that receptor. That would be no good. That would not be a great choice for somebody. If you think they're going to need opioids, like they're going to need surgery, for instance, it's not an absolute contraindication, but something that's worth discussing with them. Sounds good. So then third is acamprosate. Acamprosate is similar in structure to GABA, so you're kind of promoting that GABAergic benefit, that side of the seesaw. This is more beneficial, I tend to think, of liver disease because um, it's not processed by the liver and rather it's renally right. excreted. Right, and I actually think naltrexone can be a little bit tricky for people with like active liver disease. I recall that there's a contraindication to using it for kind of active liver disease with LFT elevations kind of five times above normal. Yeah, sometimes people get scared with that in naltrexone. Right. And from what I understand, the benefit of using this is that if it reduces your alcohol intake, that's going to that do will a also help your liver substantially. So it, it may depend on from what your liver is injured. Acamprosite is also a decent choice if you have liver disease, but because of the renal excretion, it's not great if you have kidney disease or kidney transplant or things like that. And acamprosate is also tricky because it's dosed TID, which is a bummer. Like, no one likes to take it three times a day. So that's alcohol. 
I want to move on only slightly to benzodiazepines. So in the last episode, Lindsay, you categorized these as in the same category of sort of depressants. Mm -hmm. And I would say similarly, benzodiazepines act in a really similar way. So if somebody has a substance use disorder with benzodiazepines, the mechanism is going to look really similar in terms of what withdrawal can look like. Now, relapse prevention is not quite the same because we don't have the same medications indicated. Usually what a benzodiazepine looks like is a very gradual taper. So, so to get someone off of benzos, you kind of right, taper them really this slow. really slowly to pr- avoid that sort of pushing somebody quickly into unopposed GABA glutamate. That makes sense. Imbalance. Right. Okay. So I want to move on to drug number three. And this is nicotine. Nicotine is not something we talked about in the last episode because we don't tend to think of people as often intoxicated on nicotine, although not technically impossible. But people do smoke cigarettes. They use chewing tobacco. They smoke cigarettes. All the things that contain nicotine. So I have three other options for nicotine. And again, we're going to talk about meds specifically because that's kind of what this episode's about. You can use any of these three separately or you can combine them So first, the most fundamental is you can just replace the nicotine. So somebody was taking nicotine, they are addicted to it, you just replace it, but in a form that's not also them inhaling carcinogens. You can do this with a patch and you stick on this patch and it lasts for 24 hours. You can have somebody sort of suck on this lozenge. You can have somebody use a gum. I'm just going to sidebar for the gum real quick because I think some people don't use it correctly. So this is the way you use the gum. You got it. It has to go through your mucosal membranes. You're not like swallowing the nicotine. So chew the gum, get the nicotine going, and then press it up against your lips. It's called the chew and park technique. Sometimes we'll park it in their cheek too, since there's a little more room over there. Exactly. Exactly. So this just replaces the nicotine, but without the sort of tobacco component. Usually we'll we'll recommend people to use a patch for kind of a steady state amount of nicotine based on the number of cigarettes they've been smoking each day. And then add on gum or a lozenge breakthrough feeling like, oh my gosh, I just need a cigarette right now. So let's say we have a person who doesn't want to use nicotine replacement. They're like, that just doesn't work for me. What can we tell them? There's two other medications. One is bupropion, trade name Wellbutrin. This is an antidepressant, but it also has a little bit of action at the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So this is helpful for people who also perhaps are depressed because sometimes those groups can overlap, people who are depressed and smoke cigarettes. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. This is something that you'd want somebody to start a week before they quit because it has to sort of build up in your system a little bit. Now, antidepressants across the board are not usually recommended for people with bipolar illness because they can, we say, like throw somebody or flip somebody into a more manic state. So that's who I would say this is not a great choice. All right. So let's say, you know, they don't want to use bupropion. They didn't like it. They tried it before. What can we do then? And you might try varenicline, brand name Chantix. Now, this is also a medication that is a boost this nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Similarly, started a week before, you kind of ramp up the dose, like take one pill, take two pills. And people used to think that this increased your suicide risk. This was a whole black box issue. Then there were studies. That's no longer the case, although it's not uncommon that you might hear about sort of possible psychiatric changes, people having increased thoughts of suicide when they're taking it. 
and it's not a bad idea to check in with people and at least let them know that this has been thought of in the past. Now, we've talked about medications, but I did want to briefly slip in a shout out to some other resources. There's the quit line. That's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also have a website, a texting service. There's a bunch of apps that'll send you little cues throughout the day. There's lots to be said about quitting nicotine because it's incredibly addictive. And if you are somebody you know has gone through this process, you know what it can look like and really what a struggle it can be because it can be incredibly difficult. It's really tough. People relapse quite frequently with nicotine. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we've talked about nicotine. I want to move on to our next category, which are stimulants. So that could be things like what? Things like cocaine, methamphetamine, speed, etc. So amphetamines really will jack you up, to use the non-scientific term. <laughs> yes. When I think of people acutely intoxicated on cocaine or amphetamines, I tend to think of how we're going to support them. Do they need cardiac monitoring because they're so tachycardic? Have they become so hypothermic because of this muscle activation that they need cooling techniques? Do they need extra fluids because they're sweating so profusely? Again, this would be a really extreme version. Is that all we have kind of as supportive care? Is there more? You know, if somebody's really agitated, like they're really ramped up and they're yelling or they're shouting or they're banging on things, things that will calm people down like a benzodiazepine can be helpful antipsychotic like a second generation antipsychotic can be helpful but if again if they're cardiovascularly stable it especially makes sense that like a benzo could be helpful because it kind of decreases your heart rate and your your blood pressure and just kind of Mm -hmm. like calms things absolutely now once you're out of that then we start to think about okay well what are we gonna do with this person in the longer term there are relatively few medications There's news, emerging data, and maybe there'll be more in the future about using something like disulfiram, we said antabuse or or naltrexone. So a lot of this comes into behavioral therapies, like cognitive behavioral therapy, Narcotics Anonymous, that'd be a group. There's a lot of evidence for contingency management. So those are strategies that you use, sort of reward-based programs for helping people maintain sobriety. What kind of rewards? People use a variety of rewards that vary from small things like a bus voucher or a meal ticket to larger things like an iPod or even a TV with often a range that fits the patient population that you're working with. Is it kind of like a raffle? Like you get tickets if you're if you're able to maintain sobriety? Yeah, there's a few different versions. Some look like a wheel spin. Some of them look like picking from a hat, but they usually correlate with uh, you leaving a urine sample and checking that for amphetamines or cocaine. Gotcha. It's also relevant to think that often people can have a stimulant use disorder that's co-occurring with another mood or psychotic disorder. Now, I guess this could be said probably for any drug, but I just think of it. So that would also be something to treat. If you really felt like somebody had depression and they were using the stimulant, you could treat the depression. If you felt like they really had schizophrenia, you could treat the schizophrenia. And that may also alleviate some of their drive to use the substance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so we've talked about stimulants, which are really elevating people. And now I want to talk about opioids, which are really slowing people down. So how do we help people when they've overdosed? Now, if people have really taken a lot of an opioid, they can look very ill acutely. In fact, the the biggest risk is that they'll stop breathing because you're going to hit your central nervous system. It's really going to slow things down. So 
First, this is like an emergency medicine. Go back to your ABCs or your CBABs. Circulation, breathing, airway. Are they breathing? Is their airway patent? Does they have any sort of circulation? The treatment, though, if you really think that this is an opioid, would be to give something that's going to reverse it. And that is naloxone or Narcan. So naloxone works at the opioid receptor. It binds so strongly that it's going to bump off whatever opioid is currently sitting on that receptor. Now, what this is going to do is this is going to throw somebody quickly into withdrawal. And they're not going to feel great, but they will start breathing. Which is important. That, I would say, is very important. I found this really confusing between naloxone and naltrexone and they Narcan. Sound similar. They sound pretty similar. They're both really kind of similar. opioid antagonists. They both act on the opioid receptor. So this is what I remember. Naltrexone is a long-acting opioid antagonist. And naloxone is a short-acting. So think of the difference there being an E in naltrexone and an O in naloxone. So there's an E versus an O. And that's critical because you're going to want to think, oh, like, oh, that's fast. Oh. That's fast. And you're going to want to think E for like, eh, this one sticks around. <laughs> yes. So the O is for that's fast. It also <clears throat> could be for like opiate acute intoxication. That's a little too logical for me. But I like to think of oh, like, oh, that one acts really fast. And now Trexon was like, eh, that one sticks around. Eh. Forever. So if somebody was, it comes in again, they've just taken a lot of opioids, they're not breathing, they get, and this is again something you can give IV, you can also give it IM, there's an inhaled version of it that people should have on them if they use opioids. Absolutely, like this is a life-saving medication. So let's say, you know, we've we've got them through the overdose, but now they're in withdrawal. Mm, what see. do we do now? So they're not toxic, but they're withdrawing. Yeah. We'd want to watch this withdrawal, and we have another scale for this. This is called the COWS or the Clinical Opioid Withdrawal Scale, and it has a number of different metrics. It's also a good one to look up. We'll have a link on our website. Here you treat people's symptoms. So like we said last time, people can have muscle cramps, so you could treat them with an NSAID like ibuprofen. People can have this sort of autonomic dysfunction, and, and there you might start clonidine. As an opposite of the constipation, they can have diarrhea. You might treat them with loperamide or dicyclamine. So you're treating all of the various symptoms that people tend to have. I've heard a lot about this like opioid replacement therapy. Do we ever use that in with acute withdrawal? Yeah, so you can substitute somebody from a shorter-acting opioid to a longer-acting opioid in, in the theory that it's less likely to sort of throw them into withdrawal. Those include things like methadone and suboxone. And you can use somebody on that in the short term. It's also a pretty good time to transition somebody if they're interested in a longer-term solution. Hmm. So I will also transition us to a longer-term solution and talk about relapse prevention. So if somebody wants to stop using opioids for a long time, you can substitute with an alternative from a shorter-acting opioid. Why do, we, why do they have to substitute? I've heard a lot of people say that, like, you know, I just want to get off of those drugs. I don't need drugs. That's a great idea. And I think that is, that would be wonderful. You know, I think we all have the goal of this person not needing to take medication. 
On the other hand, what we know is that people who have an opioid use disorder have a really high rate of relapsing. And so being on a medication, a long-term medication, can help them be much more successful in their attempts to gradually stop using. And I've also kind of read that chronic use of opioids like really kind of puts you in a deficit state in terms of like where your like normal opioid level should be. And so taking a, an opioid agonist to replace where they should be is it like helps them to feel normal again and functional and like not have those cravings because otherwise you're in that deficit state. So let's talk about two different medications for relapse prevention. And these can also be a little tricky. We'll try and differentiate as much as we can. So there's methadone and suboxone or, or buprenorphine is the generic name. So let's talk about methadone first. Methadone came first. Methadone is also hits the opiate receptor, but it's got a much longer half-life. So you don't tend to cycle through this like high and low as quickly. If you get methadone, you have to get it at a site that's approved by the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, in a methadone clinic. You go every day, you get your methadone, you can sort of start to space it out over time. This has the benefit of building engagement, like people go to the centers, the centers are required to have other sort of services and case management and treatment, mental health treatment, and so that can be a helpful source for people. More recently, buprenorphine has come out and buprenorphine when it's combined with some with another drug can be labeled as suboxone now buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist so it's it, it's not getting you quite to that same high but it because it, it has a ceiling effect but it's also not going to cause ever respiratory depression because it's not fully fully binding to the opioids on the other hand it binds pretty tightly and so if you did take another opioid it probably wouldn't even get out of the way and it would just sit on the receptor. And so you're unlikely to get a high from something else if you're taking the mm -hmm. buprenorphine. Consequently, you get less euphoric effect. There's less cravings. People often say as some pain control benefits as well, as does methadone. Now, because this binds so tightly, buprenorphine does, if you took it while you are also taking another opioid, it's going to bump them off and you're going to have less of effect because of that midpoint ceiling and it is going to kind of feel like withdrawal. So you you have to wait for somebody to not have another opioid in their system first. So that's something to kind of keep in mind if you're thinking mm -hmm. about choosing these. Mm -hmm. If you combine buprenorphine plus naloxone, that's what's sold as suboxone. And I tend to think of the naloxone putting the oxone in suboxone. But wait, I thought naloxone causes withdrawal. Why are they throwing that in with with the buprenorphine? With, I don't get a, it. with another opioid that you're trying to supplement? Yeah. Okay, so that is added to prevent abuse. And let me tell you this kind of neat system that somebody devised. So naloxone is only available to your body if it is intravenous. Like if you eat it, it's not going to have much effect one way or another. It doesn't do anything. So you can either inhale it or you can inject it. So that's why if somebody's like in an opioid crisis, like don't try and feed them naloxone. It's not going to work. Do one of the other routes. The reason it's there is to prevent people from injecting the suboxone because then it would throw them into withdrawal. It's to prevent diversion, essentially. That's sneaky. Sneaky, but helpful. Yes. Buprenorphine can be dosed every day. Somebody can come into a clinic, kind of like we were saying earlier, or this can be sent home uh, as a monthly prescription. 
again, there's lots of rules and regulations that apply to some of these, and it's worth asking somebody about if you have more interest or questions about them. Both of these medications are wonderful, and they save lives. Naltrexone is another med to talk about in this category because it's also an opioid antagonist. It's sometimes used for relapse prevention because it can reduce or prevent that high or that sort of like pain numbingness that people get from opioids. It's not going to do a lot for cravings, though. So mm-hmm. somebody may still want to use. They just won't get as much effect from it. I've also heard that like certain highly motivated groups also might do okay on naltrexone like physicians who have substance use disorders who have kind of a lot of motivation to to not use naltrexone also comes in a monthly injection form like we said earlier but it seems like in general like suboxone and methadone are probably like treating the patient better overall in terms of reducing cravings and relapse and all these things for most people i would say that's true yeah yeah We've got two more to go, and I promise they'll be short. Cannabis. So there's no specific medications that are used to treat either cannabis intoxication or withdrawal. There are some behavioral strategies similar that we've talked about earlier, therapy, contingency management. The last category includes ecstasy, hallucinogens, phencyclidine, PCP. Now, again, Because people tend not to have such intense intoxication or withdrawal from these medications, just like for cannabis, and they tend to fade over time, there there aren't specific medications. Some of these hallucinogen or dissociative meds, I tend to think that somebody can come into the hospital, they're having a really bad trip, to, to use kind of lay terms, and they might be really agitated, really upset. In that case, provide a calm environment, a room in the emergency room that's calm, quiet, where there's less stuff going on. You can help somebody relax perhaps with a benzodiazepine. If somebody's really aggressive and agitated, that could be a time to use an antipsychotic medication. So James, do you want to do some lightning cases? Let's do it. All right. So we got a guy with alcoholism going to AA liver disease due to cirrhosis but his kidneys are okay he wants med i would suggest eight campersate right on potentially naltrexone cool once you check his lfts exactly (laughs) all right next lightning case someone is found non-responsive sitting next to heroin what are you gonna give him naloxone right oh for opioids and oh that's fast oh that's fast (laughs) All right, we have someone who wants to quit smoking and feel less depressed. I would suggest bupropion because it's both an antidepressant and a medicine for smoking cessation. Love it. Whew, that was a bunch. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, do not worry. You're not alone. Take these slowly. And again, I also think these are easier to remember and conceptualize once you've seen somebody with this. And I promise you will. If you're interested, spend some time with folks in an addiction setting or the emergency room and think about if you have a patient, what they might be interested in. There's These are the meds, but there's lots of ways to talk to people about their substance use. And we didn't even touch on things like motivational interviewing or assessing readiness for change. So those would be awesome categories to think about, to look up, and maybe they'll come back around in another episode. Yeah, if you want to see more acute intoxication and treatment of acute intoxication, head to your local emergency department. 
And if you want to see kind of longer term treatment, go to your friendly addiction clinic. Meanwhile, if you'd like to hear more about this, let us know and we'd be happy to touch on another topic. However, in the meanwhile, we're going to be moving on and stay tuned for our next mini series. Check out our website, leave a review. Let us know what you would like to hear more about in the future. Our website is www.psychessentials.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Psych Essentials. We're on Facebook as well. Check us out on iTunes where you can rate, comment, and share Psych Essentials. Leave us a review and we might just feature you in a future episode. Our music is by Javier Suarez off his album Tumbling Dishes. There's a link on our website. As always, people, places, details are changed or fictionalized to protect confidentiality. Thank you so much for listening and rave on. We'll see you at the next Burning Man. Until next time. Bye.